0: And please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Matthew 25, we'll begin reading in verse 31. Hear the word of the Lord. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then He will say to those on the left, Depart from Me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave Me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave Me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome Me. Naked, and you did not clothe Me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit Me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we ask for Your grace, the leading of Your Spirit, as we turn our attention to Your Word now to study it. And we pray, Lord, that we would profit according to Your will in our study of it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. These words bring us to the conclusion of Jesus' Olivet Discourse, that sermon, that teaching that He gave to His disciples there outside the city walls of Jerusalem, in view of the temple, they were gathered on the Mount of Olives. As we've seen in chapter 25, the second half of this sermon, Jesus speaks specifically uh, in terms of his return and in terms of what should be happening with respect to that return. In the parable of the Ten virgins. He taught us of the need to be vigilant, looking out for Jesus' return, but also prepared for the fact that that return may take longer to arrive than we might otherwise anticipate. And then in the parable of the talents, Jesus instructs us of the necessity to be diligent as we await His return, not sitting idly by, looking skyward in hopes that Jesus might return at any time, but rather to be about those callings to which He has called us, investing the abilities and the gifts, the resources that we have for kingdom purposes and for the glory of God. But then Jesus closes the Olivet Discourse with this passage and what a conclusion it is as Jesus describes in some of the clearest teaching about the last judgment that will coincide with the return of Of our Lord Jesus Christ. By way of introduction, it's worth noting several things here in connection with this event. Uh, We see here that it will be a glorious event. Verse 31 When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. So we've said before, Jesus' second advent will supply quite a contrast. To his first advent. His first advent was in humility. His second coming will be in great glory and magnificence. His first advent was obscure, known to a relative few. His second advent will be very public, uh, known throughout the world, and unstakeable for what it is. His first Advent received a number of visitors, those who attended His birth, those who sought Him out at His birth, and shortly afterward. Well, the second coming will be attended, as it says here, by all the angels with Him. And He will sit, not only does He come in glory, He will sit on His glorious throne, His throne of glory. So twice in that one verse, the word glory occurs to emphasize the the magnificence, the overwhelming splendor that will characterize Jesus' second coming. We also see by way of introduction that it will be a universal event. This is an event for which every living creature has a ticket. We'll all be there. We'll all participate in it. Notice what he says. Verse 31, again, all the angels with him, That would, of course, include the angels in heaven, the heavenly hosts, the armies of heaven. But I think we would also uh, have to add to that the fallen angels, the demons, the devil, those who fell with him in rebellion against the Lord. Notice verse 32, its universality will include all the nations, all people, all who have ever lived will be gathered for this glorious event. Not only will it be glorious, not only will it be universal, but it will also be a divisive event. This will be the ultimate dividing point at the culmination and the conclusion of human history. Strictly speaking, this is not a parable. Notice earlier Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like this, or the kingdom of heaven is like that. He doesn't say that here. He simply says, in, in what would amount to history, to prose, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, when these things happen, and then He likens it, He compares it, to a shepherd engaging in this task of sorting out the sheep from the goats. But And He uses that imagery, but Jesus really is not, strictly speaking, telling this as a parable. Although He uses that metaphor to describe it. But He does use it. Verse 32 Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. We're not certain why that separation takes place, other than maybe for the purpose of having sheep, having goats distinct from one another. It is true that often during the day, sheep and goats would pasture together And at the end of the day, the shepherd would separate them out because the sheep were able to tolerate the cool of the evening. The goats tended to need to be huddled together more for warmth. At any rate, there is a separation going on. Sheep, goats. Sheep on the right hand, goats on the left hand. And it is worth noting that of all the distinctions, all the classifications that we make of people, at the end of the day, at the end of human history, the only distinction that matters is sheep or goat. Not male or female, not black or white, not Easterner or Westerner, not rich or poor, whatever classifications, whatever divisions we could come up with for people. But only this one. Sheep or goat. And so we see this division taking place as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, placing the sheep on his right, the goats on the left. I don't know if there's any significance in that change. The sheep on his right, the goats on the left. Perhaps a hint there of his possession of the sheep as his own. But again, it's just a picture, it's a metaphor that he uses here. The lesson that we learn from it and through the rest of the parable that we're going to explore in more detail is very clear. Jesus' second coming will mean the separation of the righteous from the wicked and the sending of both to their eternal fixed destinies. Jesus' coming will mean the separation of the wicked, the righteous from the wicked and the sending of both to their eternal and fixed Destinies. And that separation basically involves three differences that we want to look at in the remainder of this passage. First of all, as you look at these two groups, the sheep, the goats, uh, you see here two different descriptions of them. Look at verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father." Then in verse 41, he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. Two different descriptions. One group are called blessed. The other group are called cursed. Now, we could imagine all kinds of reasons, and it's really obvious for those descriptions. The blessed are those who will inherit heaven, who will be with the Lord in his kingdom, uh, for whom that kingdom has been prepared. The cursed are those who are facing the displeasure of the King, of the Son of Man, and will be in hell forever. But there's a deeper biblical resonance to those terms. It goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. uh, Back to God's covenant with His people. Deuteronomy 27, 28. uh, the, The blessings for obedience. The curses for disobedience. And the people were reminded of that in a a powerful and graphical way where they were gathered on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And on Mount Gerizim, they pronounced the blessings that would come for covenant faithfulness and obedience. On Mount Ebal, they would announce the curses that would fall on the people for covenant unfaithfulness and for their disobedience to the commands of God. Of course, if you trace the history of Israel through the Old Testament, um, you see that the people experienced those curses because, in the end, they rebelled against the Lord. In the end, they followed their own gods. In the end, they went their own way. They experienced those curses, hardship, deprivation, and ultimately the removal from the land into which the Lord had led them. And so these terms are loaded with biblical significance. Blessings for those who are covenantally faithful, I would add, in Christ, and curses for those who are not. The, the, the blessing of God, the favor of God, versus the curse of God, His displeasure, His wrath. So these two different descriptions of these two groups. One group described as blessed under the favor, the benevolence of God. The other group described as cursed under His wrath, under His judgment, for their disobedience, for their waywardness. So two different descriptions distinguish these two. Also here, obviously, two different destinies uh, distinguish these two. Look at verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then again, in verse 41, He will say to those on His left, Depart from Me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Two different destinies uh, are described here. The first one, of course, is heaven itself. Verse 34, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, Every word there has significance. He says to inherit the kingdom it is an inheritance and that too goes back into the Old Testament uh, where even the people themselves are described as the inheritance of the Lord uh, and his inheritance for them is the promised land and then even you move into uh, into the New Testament, in Peter, who describes the, the, the blessedness that awaits God's people as having an inheritance that is stored up for us in heaven that cannot rust or perish or fade, cannot be spoiled or perished perish or fade, kept for us by the power of God. It's described as what? It's described as an inheritance. That we who are in Christ uh, are heirs of this vast fortune, this overwhelming inheritance. That will one day be ours. Well, at the day of judgment, we're ushered into it. Enter this inheritance. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Kingdom is the second key word that is here. Of course, Jesus has spoken a great deal in the Gospel of Matthew, as we've seen, about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. To be part of his people is to be part of those who are under the reign of King Jesus. Now, as we'll see, at this point, it becomes clear that everyone is under his reign. But not everyone is a citizen. There are those who are citizens of the kingdom who willingly, by the grace of God, submit to the reign of Jesus. And there are those who are the conquered, those who are the vanquished, the enemies of the king, who find themselves, whether they like it or not, and they don't, they don't like it, under his reign. But here we're talking about the kingdom in the sense of those of us, by God's grace, who are citizens of it. We inherit this kingdom. It is a kingdom under the reign of the Son of Man. But it's also described as prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And here we get a sense of God's purpose, His plan in saving His people that goes back even to creation. And even as Paul puts it in Ephesians 1... That we were chosen in Christ before the creation, before the foundation of the world, according to God's purpose of salvation. So that's the destiny that awaits those who were the sheep, those who were in Christ Jesus. This, This inheritance of a glorious kingdom and being part of this kingdom that the Father in His love and mercy and grace had prepared for us even before the creation, the foundation of the world. But what about the wicked? Well, That's described very graphically in verse 41. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Again, every word here is loaded. First, depart from me. They're cast out of the presence of the king. And we've already gotten a hint of that in the previous two parables, haven't we? You have the the virgins, these bridesmaids who are unprepared. And when they do come, find that the door is shut and locked. And they knock and they want in. And the voice comes from within, the voice of the bridegroom. I don't know you. Stay out. You don't belong here. There's a separation of that door. And then the parable of the talents involves this kind of separation, doesn't it? The, the, the final servant, the third servant, who just buried the talent that he had been given, finds himself utterly cast out. Verse 30, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, a graphic description of the, the agony, the regret, the guilt, the pain. But of the separation, cast him out in that place, away from the master will be those things. And then here, that uh, that separation is made explicit. Depart from Me. Get out of My sight. Go from My presence. You don't belong here with Me. You belong out there. Where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, or here as it's described, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Eternal fire. You know, there are those who take exception to hell being eternal. Which seems somewhat inconsistent if they're happy with heaven being eternal. But for some reason they say, well, hell cannot be eternal because if something's burning, it's eventually consumed. And they have other reasons for that view. But I think that's patently unbiblical. It's it's clearly contrary to some very plain passages in Scripture that indicate the eternal eternal. Punishment of the wicked in hell. And Jesus describes here an eternal fire. A fire that does not go out. The fire describing the pain, the punishment, the agony of hell itself. And a hell, as He said, that is prepared for the devil and his angels. Prepared first for Satan and those with him described here as His angels. Those who apparently rebelled with Satan against the Lord. And God prepared hell for them in their rebellion against the Lord. But those human beings who were led astray by the devil and who share with Him rebellion against the Lord, refusal to submit to the reign of the King, will find themselves sharing In that eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Can you think of a more ghastly fate than to enter into the same punishment prepared for Satan and the demons? I can't. Now, it would be somewhat outside the purposes of this sermon, this text, to explore that further, the biblical teaching on rewards in heaven and punishments in hell. The Bible does seem to indicate that there will be degrees of reward and responsibility in heaven, and it seems to indicate there will be degrees of punishment and suffering in hell. But the fact remains, heaven is heaven, and hell is hell. The twain shall never meet, and the two shall never change. Heaven is a place of inconceivable bliss. Heaven a place of unspeakable suffering. But two different destinies that are described here. Heaven and hell. Blessed and cursed. Heaven and hell. There's another point of difference. Another point of separation here. And it has to do with two different behaviors. Two different behaviors. Look at verse 35. Why? Why the one? Why the other? Why the sheep? Why the goats? Why heaven? Why hell? Well, look at what the king says in verse 35. I was hungry. You gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. Stranger, you welcomed me. Naked, you clothed me. Sick, you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. You see here the merciful and compassionate behavior of the sheep. Of the righteous. This mercy that is showed in these various situations. Meeting needs. And not just physical needs. I was hungry and you fed me. But even relational needs. I was in prison, and you came to me. And I was sick, and you came to visit me. You showed your regard, your love for me, your concern for me, in that way. Now notice that that's met with bewilderment. Look at verse thirty-seven. Then the righteous will answer and saying, "Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you?" Thirsty and give you drink. And so they're, they're, they're kind of surprised. When did this happen? When did we do this for you? There's a, there's a humility here. There's a sense of, of, of amazement because they don't really recall doing these things. They certainly don't take pride in doing these things. And they certainly are somewhat bewildered by the fact that Jesus said, I was sick and you visited me, or I was hungry and you fed me. And they say, When did we do that for you, Jesus? And Jesus explains in verse 40, The king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Now this verse needs some thinking. The least of these my brothers. And later, talking to the wicked, he just says the least of these. Who is that? Who are the least of these my brothers? brothers. Well, we have to ask the question, who who would Jesus describe as his brothers? There are some who would say, well, this is a verse that's teaching the necessity to show mercy to all mankind. Everybody's Jesus' brother. Jesus doesn't put it that way. In fact, Jesus is very clearly in the scriptures who his brothers are. You want to turn back to uh, chapter 12, verses 48 and 49. We'll just listen. We've covered this passage. So, of course, you all have this fresh on the brain and very knowledgeable. But uh, back uh, whenever it was, we were in Matthew 12, we looked at this passage, and Jesus is talking to the crowd, and His mothers and brothers arrive, and someone comes and tells Jesus, well, your mother, your brothers are here. And notice what Jesus says. He replied to the man, who is my brother, and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Later, in Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus is raised from the dead and the women have come to him to to tend to his grave, not expecting to meet Jesus, and yet they do, uh, Jesus says to them, Do not be afraid. This is uh, 28.10. Go and tell my brothers who are in Galilee, and there they to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Who are Jesus' brothers? Well, very clearly, it's his disciples. Or more broadly, we might say it's Christians. It's those who have trusted in him. Those who are disciples, true disciples of Jesus. He's already used that term this way. And so certainly interpreting this passage in its context, the book of Matthew, When Jesus says, to the least of these my brothers, we would reasonably, and I think on good grounds, understand that Jesus said, any time that you did some act of mercy or compassion, to even the least Christian, the most helpless, the most pitiable, whatever it might be, the the worst suffering, the least able to return the favor. Whenever you did it, even to one of the least of these, that would include more than the least, but certainly even to the least, you have done it to me. Now that too might require some explanation, other than, uh, but it would simply suffice to say that Jesus so identifies himself with his body, the church, that to minister to a Christian is to minister to Christ. And that works both ways. To attack or uh, harm a Christian is to attack or seek to harm Christ. The Apostle Paul learned that in a pretty astounding way, didn't he? As he was on the road to Damascus, and Jesus appears to him there and says to Paul, Why are you persecuting me? How was Paul persecuting Jesus? By persecuting his church. Jesus so identifies with his body, the church, that to minister to a fellow believer, even the least fellow believer, is to minister to Jesus Christ. Himself. Isn't that amazing? You're not just serving that person. You're serving Christ. You are ministering to Christ. And don't think he doesn't notice. Don't think that that act that no one else may know about is forgotten by the Lord. Because He brings it up here on the day of judgment. They're bewildered. But Jesus said, whenever you did it, even to the least believer... Least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. But then the flip side of that, of course, has to do with those who are pronounced cursed, those whose destiny is hell. Why is it so? Well, notice verse 42. Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me no food. Thirsty. You didn't give me anything to drink. Stranger. And you didn't show any hospitality. Pretty amazing. All these things. And then verse 44, they also are bewildered. Although you detect a note unlike the sheep, a note of defensiveness here. Lord, they call Him Lord. You don't need to read a whole lot into that. Remember Philippians 2, the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord. To the glory of God the Father, and here they say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison, and didn't minister to you? Sure, if Jesus had shown up, they would have served him, but he wasn't there. When did we when did we when did we neglect to do this for you? And Jesus answers in verse, verse forty-five. He will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these. You did not do it unto me. You see their neglect to love, to show mercy to, to receive, to take interest in a Christian. Even the least of the believers was to neglect to show love or mercy or compassion or an interest in Christ Himself. Again, Christ identified with His church. To neglect a believer is to neglect Christ. Now, this should trouble you a little bit, dear Reformed Presbyterian justified by grace through faith alone Christians. Because if this was the only passage we had, we would go away saying we're saved by our works. Does the Bible teach that? No. No. Matthew doesn't teach that. Paul doesn't teach that. James doesn't teach that. We are justified by grace through faith. But that faith inevitably produces works. It works both ways. If we are changed, they will be inevitable. And as Christians, we will want to do them. We will take the opportunity and make the effort and suffer the expense and the cost in terms of time or or emotion to minister to one another because Christ has loved us and ministered to us. But you see, these works of mercy are not the cause of salvation. They're the evidence of it. They are the proof of those who are truly Christ's. You see, this passage precludes hypocrisy. It shuts out those who merely talk and includes those whose lives demonstrate the genuine fruit of real faith, real regeneration in Christ. It's not saying we're saved by our works. You see, the judgment will be according to the evidence. And those who are without works have dead faith. Faith without works is what? It's dead, James says. And so the judgment comes on the basis of the evidence, the evidence of a changed life, the evidence of someone who, because they are in Christ, shows the compassion and love for others who are in Christ that a Christian should and that a Christian would. You see, the evidence of new life in Christ must be plain and will be plain in those who truly belong to Christ. These acts of compassion with the expression of a regenerate heart and someone who knows the Lord. Then these others, the, 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 the goats, regardless of what kind of talk they talked, are found lacking when it comes to any evidence of genuine faith. And so they are shut out. You see, there's a good reason that James wrote religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, Jesus, as He's teaching here, doesn't get into it. There are other evidences of real salvation. One is that we become compassionate. We take an interest in even the least of our brothers and sisters in Christ who want to minister to them and serve them and meet their needs and show love and support for them. But the other that James hints at here is holiness of life. And Jesus could equally have said... Uh, I gave you my word, and you, you obeyed it, and you loved it, and you sought to live by it. Or I gave you my word, and you ignored it, and you lived the way you wanted to, and you disobeyed my word, my commands. James hints at that. True religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, that's the compassion, and to keep oneself unstained from the world, that's the holiness, that's the obedience. Genuine faith shows itself in compassion, it shows itself in holiness, of life characterized by a desire to be obedient to the Word of God. It will show itself. It will come out. You can't hide a regenerate heart. And when Jesus pronounces this judgment here, it's made on the basis of the evidence of a changed life, not just words spoken that are just so much air. You see that. You understand that. Which drives us back to look at our profession of faith in Christ to be diligent to make our calling and election sure. To say, where is the fruit of Christ in me? Is my profession just words with no desire of the heart for my Savior? Or do I love Christ and I love those who belong to Christ? Because Jesus said to serve even the least believer is to serve Christ Himself. Now notice, passage ends with verse 46. These will go away into eternal punishment the righteous into eternal life. It all comes down to that. Limited options. Sheep or goats. Life or death. Heaven or hell. Reward or punishment. One or the other. And permanent destinies. Eternal punishment. Eternal life. Entering into an agony that we can't conceive or describe. Describe. Entering into a joy that we cannot conceive or describe. They want to know, His disciples do, about the destruction of Jerusalem and the return of Christ in the end of the age. And Jesus, Jesus gives it to them straight. He gives it to us straight. It comes down to this. The day when you stand before the King of kings, the Lord of lords, before his glorious throne. And you're shunted to the right or to the left. Blessed, cursed. Heaven, hell. Why? New life in Christ that shows itself in tangible ways or words. Words against Christ, words, words for Christ that have no fruit, no evidence to back them up. That's what human history is coming to. This day will arrive for you and for me. It may arrive in our lifetime. It may arrive a millennium after we're long dead and gone. But it will arrive and you and I will all stand there and be there together There's only one answer. There's only one preparation for today. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in words, but in truth. Not so that your life goes on the way you always wanted it to, but so that your life is changed by Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. You will be the sheep. You will be on the right hand. You will be ushered into a glorious kingdom with the blessing of the Father. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that our faith is real. We pray that we are not self-deceived. We pray that we're not playing games. But Father, we pray that we do have hearts that are alive by Your Spirit. And that our trust in Christ is God-given. And Father, that we see You changing us. Helping us put to death sin. Putting in our hearts not just righteousness, but a desire, a love for what is right. Father, may that be so in me. May that that be so in every one of us. That on that day, we would not be shocked dismayed, undone, but filled with a joy, filled with a thrill that is beyond anything we can imagine. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.